God's faithful. Last week, we saw God's faithfulness to the fifth generation from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. God had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, and they stayed there in tents, living as nomads. Remember, Abraham was very wealthy in, in his homeland of Ur. Very wealthy. He left his comfort. He left his wealth. Now, granted, he took some stuff with him. But he left his nice big home for a tent in the land that God promised him. That was until famine had brought them all into Egypt, and this time with God's blessing, that this was how it was supposed to be. See, God had told Abraham back in Genesis 15, 13, no, it won't be on the screen, so you could look it up later, in Genesis 15, 13, that his descendants would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years before receiving the promised inheritance. However, we left off where Israel and his family was on top of the food chain in Egypt. Remember that from last week? Right? Joseph brings the whole family into the land. They're given the best of things. Joseph is number two in command. The only person Joseph answers to is the Pharaoh. Everybody else answers to Joseph. Joseph blesses his family, brings his family to meet the Pharaoh. Pharaoh blesses them. They're given livestock. They're given gold. They're given silver. They get a nice big house in a nice part of town. Right? They're given a ton of property. Life is good if you are of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. Well, how could things get to a place where they would become slaves? Well, I'm glad you asked. We pick up in Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. This is going to be a long read. We're going to fly through it, and then we're going to talk about it, okay? Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king, everyone say a new king. A new king who did not know about Joseph. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthless, ruthlessly imposed all of this work on them. See how quick that changed? You see how quick that changed? The Israelites were flourishing. They were wealthy and healthy and being fruitful. Things were good for them in Egypt. They were highly respected in the community. They were the family of the great Joseph. 
the great Joseph who made the Pharaoh and all of Egypt wealthy and powerful. Listen, again, I know I say this often, but, but stay with me. We cannot gloss over Scripture as though it's some mystical, magical, other parallel universe. This is history. This actually happened. These were human beings with the same skin and emotions that you and I have. You put yourself in their shoes. Listen, Joseph's family, they were the Rockefellers of Egypt. Now, if I drop a name like Rockefeller, it brings to a certain mentality that we have in this country, right? A name that generations of wealth spanned, right? You know, when, when, I would, would, when I was a kid and I would beg my mom or dad at Toys R Us for something, I'd always get the line, hey, 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 my last name isn't Rockefeller, right? It's just, right, so I could imagine in Egypt, the little Egyptian kids, right, at, at whatever toy store they had, going, mom, dad, can I, can I have this? Whoa, 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 whoa. Listen, I'm not, I'm not an Israelite, okay? All right? You understand? It's, that's, that's who these people were. It was known. These are the people that brought the wealth and power to Egypt because of that famine, because of that experience and what Joseph did for the nation. In Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh was seen as a god on earth and his edicts would last for generations. Did you know that? It would last for generations. The next Pharaoh could not just change or veto former edicts from the previous Pharaoh. There was precedent. There was a respect system. Why? Why did it work that way? Because they had convinced the Egyptians that the Pharaoh was God on earth. Well, God wouldn't contradict God just because he left one body and entered the body of the guy's son. You understand? It was a system that they had in place. They knew their history and they knew it well. When this passage, passage says there was a new king, who didn't know Joseph, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. You ready? No, you're not ready? I'll wait. That's cool. Want coffee? You ready? Seatbelts on? Oh my gosh, what is going on? Where is it? Good morning. <laughs> All right, come on. It's okay. Listen, it's not that kind of church. I'm not going to yell at you if you respond to me. It's a, I'll take some amens. I'll take some shervins. I'll take some, yeah, something. Give me, just give me something. Everybody say hi real quick. Everybody awake? You had a pulse? All right. Thank God, my goodness. All right, let's try this again. Woo, okay. So here is exactly what happened. In ancient Egypt, a clan that had influence within Egypt would wait for a pharaoh to show weakness and then would try to take over the throne. Now, in ancient Egyptian history, there have been 31 different dynasties of Egyptian rule on the historical record. 31 different families that took the throne from another family. A clan saw weakness in maybe the great-great-grandson of Pharaoh who was spoiled and said, hey, we could take this guy. And what they would do is they would actually stage a coup. And now their family would become the next dynasty of pharaohs. Well, here's the thing. If you believe that Pharaoh is God on earth, and now you, he's not going to contradict himself from previous edicts, what you do is you go in and you destroy the history. Destroy it. 
completely and utterly remove everything. Burn the books, baby. Rewrite the history so now you can get away with whatever you want as the new family that took over. You understand? So, when we see a new king who didn't know who Joseph was, he legitimately didn't know who Joseph was. Because when they staged the coup, he sent in the hitmen to go destroy all history. Get rid of it. What got destroyed in the history? The story of Joseph. Listen, just so you know, the one who wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, was Moses. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. We're only introducing him to the story today. See, these, these first five books being written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but penned by Moses, didn't happen until after all of this occurred. So the history that we see here was all here in the Israel tradition and also inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved as truth. But as far as the Egyptians do, once that coup was staged and history was rewritten, who are the Israelites? Oh, they're just a bunch of slaves that work in, in uh, Pymouth and Ramses. A new dynasty and a new pharaoh showed up and wondered who these wealthy, influential people were. And he wasn't going to allow anyone but his family to thrive like that in Egypt for fear of a takeover. He knew they had the ability to create their own dynasty and remove him with their power. You understand? Have you noticed that people always think you're going to do to them what they've done to somebody else? Have you noticed that? Liars always think you're lying to them. They don't trust anyone because they're not trustworthy. Thieves always think somebody's stealing from them. If you've got a boss that's always accusing you of being a thief, watch out, he's robbing somebody. Interesting, isn't it? Human nature hasn't changed. It hasn't changed one bit. This is thousands of years ago. And this guy's like, hey, we just staged a coup. Watch out, or these guys are going to stage a coup on us. He knew they had the ability to create their own dynasty and remove him with their power, and so he immediately had to turn them into slaves. You see, Hitler did not invent this concept. It's as ancient as the beginning of time. 320 years pass us in just a few verses. That went fast, right? 320 years pass us in just a few verses as we see Pharaoh has now issued that every male child born of Hebrew women were to be thrown into the Nile and eaten by crocodiles. We see Pharaoh making women sacrifice their children out of his fear. Out of his fear. Out of his own convenience. A culture of abortion and murder. Well, a young woman named Jochebed had a baby boy who she hid until she couldn't hide him anymore after three months, set him in a basket in the Nile, and he would be found by Pharaoh's daughter who loved him and brought him into her own home. Pharaoh's daughter 
herself did not just have a child and you couldn't just go down to Baby's R Us or order some formula. And so she said to a young girl who happened to be walking by, who also happened to be the baby's sister, would you please go find a Hebrew woman for me who is nursing to take care of my child, I'll pay them. And so she goes and gets her mom, AKA Jochebed, and Jochebed was now paid by Pharaoh's daughter to take care of her own son for what is believed to be two years. And then Moses would be given back to Pharaoh's daughter and he would grow up in Pharaoh's palace. We see this didn't last for long though because Moses would reject the silver spoon and would be with his people when he found out he was in fact an Israelite. And he walked away. Voluntarily, he could have grown up in the lap of luxury. He could have lived the rest of his life out, just taking it easy. Everything was good. But something inside of him was tortured. He knew he was called for something more. He belonged somewhere else. And it cost him everything, and it was hard for him to do, but he did what was right because he feared God more than he feared Pharaoh. He would be with his people for a short time. Why a short time? Because he would kill an Egyptian taskmaster in a fit of rage. See, here's the thing, and this is why like, I feel bad for like, you know, trust fund babies who don't have good parents. Like, they, they, they don't get to grow up with the, the necessary skills for life. Like, look, I know spoiling your, your kids seems adorable at the time, but when they turn into adults, they end up in prison. You, you have to discipline them. Nobody likes discipline. Nobody. If you like discipline, you're crazy. You like, you like the results of discipline. Nobody likes discipline. Nobody likes saying no to another cookie. Right? No, nobody likes saying yes to getting up an hour early to go to the gym. Nobody, nobody likes discipline. But it must be learned as a principle because you learn to love the results of the discipline. Nobody taught Moses discipline. Moses was this spoiled, rich kid in Pharaoh's palace, and the second he was passionate about something, right? Like the rich kid that, that leaves home and decides, I'm going to become a social justice warrior, but all their information is from Google, <laughs> right? Okay? With his passion, he leaps out, sees, sees one of the taskmasters beating on one of the Israelites, and with, with this love and passion for the Israelite, he goes too far and he kills the taskmaster. So he flees for his life to a land called Midian out in the wilderness where he would meet his bride and his father-in-law and he would spend 40 years as a shepherd. I know, we're flying through this fast because we don't have time to go through every single thing, but you hanging with me? All right? 40 years. Let me just tell you, he was 40 when he left Egypt and then spent another 40 years out here in Midian. We see a desperate murderer fugitive on the run to a land where no one would know him. But the writer of Hebrews saw it a little bit differently. If you look in Hebrews 11, 23 through 26, the writer of Hebrews writes, By faith Moses, after he was born was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. 
By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. You see, Moses' parents had great faith. The faith to set their son free at only three months old and trust God with him. They feared God more than the king. They rebelled against Pharaoh by preserving their child's life. Listen, let me be really clear about something here, friends. We should obey the laws of the land as Christians until they violate God's law. We obey the laws of the land until they violate God's law. Nowhere in, in the word of God does it say you should go 80 on the LIE. Nowhere. The law of the land is 55, right? <laughs> I know. I get in a lot of trouble here because I never go 55. I don't go 80 either, though, okay? Just saying. <laughs> 79. No, I don't go 79. The, the, the point, though, that I'm trying to illustrate is there are laws that we may think are silly. But if they're not violating God's law, who cares? Just obey the law of the land. And see, this, this, is, this, this is where I get a little political, and it's not intentional, because as far as I'm concerned, this isn't political. This is right and wrong, okay? The whole issue of the government infringing and forcing companies that are owned by Christians to pay for abortion... Listen, that's, that's where we stage a coup, my friends. That, that is where we say, absolutely not. Take me to court. I will go bankrupt fighting you because that's not okay. That is where the law of the land is now infringing on God's law. Where the law of the land is now infringing on how God sees children, how God sees life. We obey the law of the land as Christians until they violate God's law. We must use wisdom, but not be afraid of the future, but have the faith and the wisdom to obey God under all circumstances. It was by faith that Moses made the decision to walk away from his lavish lifestyle and voluntarily suffer with his people. He considered that any pain for Christ's sake is greater than the treasures of Egypt or this world. That's powerful. You know, we give Moses a hard time because we're like, dude, dude lost self-control and murdered somebody. That's true. That's true, and I don't want to minimize that. But can, can we look at the heart behind what he did? Yeah, he stumbled on the journey, but he made a journey very few make. Most of us would enjoy the silver spoon. Where's our passion for Jesus Christ? Where's our passion for his people? Don't be afraid to make mistakes along the way. Don't be afraid to drop the ball. You're still human. You're still flawed. But I, I've said this a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand and one. Jesus would rather see you crawling towards the cross than sprinting in any other direction. In any other direction. 
What an example Moses was for us today. What great faith to live for the God who he had not yet seen or heard from because of faith. But God would reward that faith with something great. It was while Moses was shepherding in Midian that he would encounter a burning bush that would not burn up. And God would call him to go back to Egypt, but with a purpose. God called Moses to go to Egypt to lead God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan that God had promised to Abraham. You, you remember a little while ago I told you it was 320 years of time before, before Moses was born and hidden in a basket? And so you see it was that the ripe old age of 80 years old that God called Moses to go and set his people free. 80 years old. 80 years For those of you that are in a rush to accomplish the goals you believe God has put in your heart to accomplish, I just want you to think of Moses. God prepped, for, God preserved Moses for the first 40 years. God prepared Moses for the next 40 years. And now God would propel Moses forward. I'm sorry, I used to be a youth pastor, so alliteration is something we do, right? That's not in my notes, by the way. So God preserved Moses for his first 40 years. God then prepared Moses for the next 40 years. Shepherding is one great way to learn how to lead people. Because <laughs> people can be sheep. There's a reason Jesus compares us to sheep, right? It's, it's not an accident that he used that example. Notice he didn't compare us to wolves or to like lions or bears or tigers or any of that stuff. But he compares us to sheep, which really are harmless, dumb creatures. Just saying. <laughs> Very easily led. They, they, well, sometimes they stay together, it depends. <laughs> right? God called Moses to go and set his people free. Moses had questions and concerns about doing this because he was terrified. So he makes a bunch of excuses. But, but ultimately, after all the excuses, God says he'll go with him. And so Moses obeyed. And I just want to point something out here. And again, please, go, go and read through Genesis and, and see this without the abridged quick version. Okay, I, I just want you to see something really cool here. Once Moses agreed to obey, right? Moses was terrified, so Moses is making all these excuses. I don't want to go. I'm not qualified. Send somebody else. I'm going to go with you. Okay, but I, I can't speak too good. Fine, I'll send your brother with you. Okay, fine, I'll go. Right? Once he agrees to go, even though he's terrified, and in the back of his mind, he's thinking, as soon as I get there, they're going to kill me. I'm a dead man. Thanks, God. Appreciate the death sentence. Once he agrees to go, once he obeys God, God reaches out to him again and says, oh, by the way, everyone who wants you dead is dead now. You, you could have opened with that. No? I mean, if, if you were trying to sell me on doing something for you and you knew my concern was they're going to kill me there, wouldn't you open up with, dude, everybody who wants you dead over there, I took care of already. It's done. What? Isn't that how you would lead in? Not God. God's like, I want you to have such faith 
I want you to trust me. I want you to be able to walk right in the presence of people who want you dead because you know I'm with you. I want you to have that kind of faith, that kind of confidence in me. And once Moses goes, fine. God goes, yeah, I took care of that already. (laughs) You're welcome. God wanted to strengthen Moses' faith in him before he would let him know that he already took care of what he was most afraid of. What are you most afraid of today? Don't answer that out loud. Unless the answer is spiders. I think we could all agree we're afraid of spiders, right? I hate spiders. If there's a spider in the house, I grab the vacuum, Aaron grabs a, a paper towel, she goes after them full throttle, I stay at a distance, right? You need to be a man, not with spiders. Oh, don't like spiders. What are you afraid of? Because what I have found in my own personal life, so I'll preach to me, and you guys could just listen to me talking to me if that's okay. What I have found in my, in my own personal life is the thing I fear prohibits me from obeying God. The thing I fear stops my faith. It's like water and oil. They just, they can't meld together in my heart. And God wants to strengthen your faith so much that your faith overwhelms the fear. Because here's the thing. If God just takes care of all the things you're afraid of without you having to go through the exercise of trusting Him and walking through it, the next thing you're afraid of is just going to scare you just as much as the last thing. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? Is that, is that clear? If, if, if I go, I'm afraid of this, and God's like, no problem. God, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. Here's a million dollars in the bank. God, I'm afraid my car's going to break down. Here's a brand new Maserati. God, I'm afraid they're going to judge me and laugh at me. God makes you popular. Your faith muscle hasn't been worked once in that process. God's not glorified in that. God isn't just interested in making you healthy, wealthy, and wise. I'm sorry, but my dear friend in Texas, Joel, is wrong. He's wrong. If you only preach half the gospel, that's not the gospel. You've you got to give the whole counsel, the truth of God's word. It's not all about you. God isn't just waiting to bless you so that you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. There's a greater mission. There's a greater vision. It's about His glory. You know, we love going all things work together for our good and for His glory. And we love thinking so much about the our good part. Because when circumstances are not so good, we go back to that verse and go, I thought it was all going to work out to my good. And God's like, it is. But the first priority is my glory. Your good is a byproduct of my glory. And your good sometimes has to sacrifice until I'm glorified enough and you're eventually going to see it's for your good. When I'm a kid and my parents are making me go run and stop eating old junk food, I didn't feel like it was for my good. But it was. 
Do you understand? Does that make sense? Moses would return to Egypt with his brother Aaron and would confront Pharaoh, who had a hardened heart, which was hardened even more by God for God's purposes. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time there. I'm just going to say, um, God has a greater purpose in every circumstance. A greater purpose. And he truly is sovereign and in control. And there's going to be times you're like, why is this person not getting it? I don't understand how they could not get this. Sometimes it's their own stubbornness. But sometimes God is actually fastening their stubbornness to themselves because of the natural consequence and also because he has a greater plan on how he's going to use that person's stubbornness. You understand? How do I know that? Because we see it in Scripture. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and then God hardened it more. You want to be stubborn? Okay. Fine. Because God was going to use it for his purpose. Ultimately, God would send plagues to Egypt to get them to see God's power. And although one can make a strong argument that the plagues on Egypt were, were as much to build the Israelites' faith in God as much as it was to let the Egyptians know they were messing with the wrong people. Have you ever considered that? I know in the Charlton Heston version, we're like, come on, Pharaoh, are you kidding what else has to happen, dude? Do you not see? Like, literally, Moses shows up, and when he walks away, you're in trouble. It doesn't go well for you. No, nobody else felt that way in that, like, three-and-a-half-hour movie? Like, come on, let's get on with this. Pharaoh, come on, dude. Like, get a message, man. How, how, how are you not understanding what's happening? You're clearly messing with the wrong guy. And we think it was just for Pharaoh. Let me tell you something. The people of Israel for 400 years were enslaved. Anybody ever have to fight their way out of financial debt? Right? That's slavery, right? Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender. That, that's, that's a modern form of slavery. When you're fighting that battle, isn't that depressing? Sometimes you feel like you're going to quit, just lay down and die. Right, so imagine 400 years, your great-great-great-great-great-grandpa was a slave. 400 years, you can't lay down and die because you'll get a whip to the back, get up and do more work. What are you paid for your wages? Nothing. You, 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 think, you think this is a group of people that have confidence? This is a group of people that are depressed. This is a group of people that got nothing, no hope, nothing but tears and agony and the desire to just lay down and die. My dear friends, the plagues on Egypt were as much God saying, guess who's for you? Look what I could do. This is nothing. You're going to see so much more than this. Let that hope rise. Let hope rise as you see the mighty one who is going to deliver you. After nine plagues, a very stubborn Pharaoh still would not let the Israelites leave. And so the final warning came as God would kill the firstborn of every household in Egypt. 
God instructed Moses to have the Israelites kill a young, pure lamb, sprinkle the blood on the posts of their door, and when the death angel would see the blood of the lamb, he would skip that house and spare the life of the firstborn. Man, the symbolism of Jesus in the book of Exodus is so rich, isn't it? This was the first Passover, which was a feast that God had Moses set up for the people to remember every year what God did for them, but also what the Messiah would one day do for them spiritually. We also see Pharaoh's firstborn son was killed that night. His heir, who would be the next Pharaoh, was dead. Dead. The heir. And in grief, Pharaoh finally agrees to let them go. And so they left. And guess what they brought with them? If you know the answer, feel free to say it. We just talked about this last week. What'd they bring with them? I'll give you a hint. It was really heavy. No, that they made in root. They brought Joseph's bones. They brought Joseph's bones with them. As they promised him they would. They followed Moses as God was with them, check this out, as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Can you see the scene? A, a gigantic just cloud before them would go before them for them to follow. And by night, it was a pillar of fire so that they could see as if it was broad daylight as they were going forward and following. All three to six million of them, and they headed to Canaan. But there were two obstacles they had to deal with. The first was the Red Sea in front of them. The second was Pharaoh's army of chariots and soldiers behind them because Pharaoh had changed his mind and wanted his three to six million person workforce back. God told Moses that what he was about to do would cause all of the Egyptians to know he was God. Now this is where it gets crazy. The way this is described in the Bible is very different than the Hollywood production. The pillar of fire and the cloud of God's presence moved from being in front of the Israelites and it moved to the back between the Israelites and the Egyptians. You ready? So God creates a barrier with his presence. He goes from leading them in the front to now going in the back and separating them from the Egyptian army. But check this out. He was a cloud over the Egyptians, so it was pitch black, and they couldn't even see their own hands in front of their face. And yet, on the very other side was the, was the fire, so the Israelites, through the night, crossed over on dry land completely able to see as if it was daylight, even though literally just on the other side, the Egyptians are in total, utter darkness. Once the Israelites had crossed over successfully, God still had Moses keep his staff up and the water separated, which is interesting. Think about this, right? Now look, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know what's about to happen. 
But can I, can I put you in that caravan real quick? Let's say of the three to six million, we're in the back, Gar. We're the last couple to cross over. We don't know what's going on. We're just waiting for this thing to end. We get over to the other side, and we're like, yo, Moses, you could... Go ahead, buddy. Everyone's, we're good. Nope. No, 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 Moses, it's okay. There's no Israelites there, just Egyptians. Let's let the water go back to normal. Mo, good idea. Nope, God told me to do this. Yeah, Moses, we, we disagree with you. This doesn't make any sense. We, we could put this whole barrier between us and the Egyptians and just go. Like, we're good, Moses. Come on, man. <laughs> Instead of creating a barrier and letting the Egyptians go home with a story, God lifted the cloud so they could see the Israelites and pursue them by crossing the same way. Which I'm sure now, now the cloud's lifted, and now we're like, uh, Mo. They see us now. Can you drop the staff? No, God told me to do this. Moses, they are now pursuing us. What are you thinking? They're, they're coming. Look, what you're doing makes no sense, Moses. I'm sure they second-guessed Moses. I'm sure they second-guessed God. But he was simply exercising the bigger plan that he had, which was bigger than what anyone had perceived. Once the Egyptian army was in the path of the water, God threw the Egyptians into a state of confusion and even caused their chariot wheels to swerve. Now just, just consider this, right? We're, we just crossed over. Three to six million of us. They're approaching. Moses is not letting that water come back. They're getting close. We're getting nervous and we're questioning God and our leader. And then, as they get really close, all of a sudden, what, what is going on? What is happening? And they're doing wheelies. God calls Moses to raise the staff once again and make the waters return. When this happened, they overtook the Egyptians and even when they tried to swim away, God caused them to be thrown back into the water and killed. Not one of them survived. Exodus 14, 29 through 31 says it this way. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. About 15 minutes. The Israelites saw God's power and believed. They recognized Moses' leadership because he had the faith and the courage to obey God and go against what they all wanted him to do. This is a great leadership lesson as well, my friends, for all of you. 
Stand firm and obey God. Don't second guess God's orders or the vision or the call that he gives you no matter how much or who pushes back. Don't cave to the pressure. You have one general. What he says goes. And he hasn't failed yet. He hasn't dropped the ball yet. Sure, his plan can seem a bit unorthodox. Sure, it can seem like, like, you know, don't shoot until you see the whites in their eyes, right? It could, it could seem terrifying. It could seem like a close call. It could seem just downright reckless. But he knows what he's doing. The writer of Hebrews continues in Hebrews eleven twenty seven through 29. By faith, he left Egypt behind not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. And when the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. It was the faith in the invisible God that that Moses had that led him to obey God. He feared God more than he feared Pharaoh. He feared who he couldn't see more than who he could. And it was by his faith in God that the firstborn of the Israelites was spared. It was faith that did that. It was, it was believing that God really was going to do what he said he was going to do. Yeah, granted, there were, there were nine plagues before that to show God means business. And we might go, well, hey man, if the first nine came true, who would doubt the tenth? You and me. We do it all the time. God has saved you from so much and you've got short-term memory loss. And you've got long-term memory loss. He has spared you for much. He has saved you for much. He has changed you and molded you and morphed you. He has saved you from things you're not even aware of. He's done miracles in your life. It's not an accident that that check came when it did, that that person showed up when they did, that that car just missed, that this happened and that happened. That's not an accident. There are no accidents. He has divinely, supernaturally, and miraculously saved you in so many ways. And if you've never experienced any of those things, your salvation alone is the greatest miracle that has ever taken place, ever. That someone who was quite literally spiritually dead could be given new life. That the consequences for your sin, the wrath of God, would be poured out on Jesus in your place so you can go free and so you could, you could be a part of this family, so you could know him, so you could have peace, so it can be well with your soul no matter what's going on around you is a miracle. So if he hasn't failed you in the most important arena of life and he's done a couple of really cool things for you before, why are you terrified of the future? Why are you scared of how this circumstance is going to pan out? I 
I have found that fear reveals idols. I'm afraid if I don't make this much money, I'm not going to be able to live where I want, how I want. Oh, we just revealed something, didn't we? My fear is losing what I want. Well, let's look at Abraham. Abraham lived how he wanted, where he wanted, with what he wanted, and God said, leave that all behind and go. Voluntarily. He knows what you need. He's promised to take care of you. It was because of Moses' faith that the firstborn of the Israelites were spared. It was the faith to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. It was the faith to keep the waterway open because God's plan is bigger than what we have in mind. It was the faith that saves. Moses had faith that saves. Faith that saved the firstborn children. Faith that saved people from oppression. Faith that saved the Israelites from the Egyptians permanently, not just temporarily until they found a way around the river, but permanently that the entire army was destroyed in one foul swoop and not one survived. When God sets you free, you're free indeed. Jesus didn't just say, hey, look, I won an arm wrestling battle with the devil. We made a deal. You're going to be okay unless he goes back on his word. Trust me. No. Jesus said, I went into the grave and I conquered death. Death is dead because of what I did. You don't even have to think about it. You can sleep at night. Death has died under me. Man, if that doesn't send chills down your spine, you, you, mm, theology is so important because your theology changes your, your worldview, the way you see your world, the way you see life. I, 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 and I can't take churches that just want to stay on the surface and don't want to educate their people on what the truths of the Word of God is. The deep theology will change your life. It is rich. If you understood the depths of what Jesus did for you, you wouldn't have a fear or trouble in the world. Everything else is child's play. I mean, Paul had this issue with the church at Corinth as we were going over it, right? And they're arguing over the resurrection of the dead. Paul's like, are you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? You're trying to figure this stuff out with, with human thought and human philosophy? If you were saved, if it started by the Spirit... Why would it continue with the flesh? It was started by the Spirit, and it must continue with the Spirit. That's your platform. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the rock. Sorry, guys, not Peter. Peter wasn't the rock that Jesus was talking about there. Yes, his name means rock because he, right? Because he's Cephas, right? He's a rock, okay? But that's not what he was saying. Sorry, guys, Peter was not the first pope. This is just not true. Study the Word of God. Study actual church history. Peter, in that sentence, was a recipient of the information. He wasn't the hero. Jesus was the hero. Jesus said, I'm the rock. I'm the cornerstone. On this rock, on me, on who I am, on what I'm about to do for you by dying on the cross and resurrecting. This is the rock. This is the foundation upon which I'm building the church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Do you understand? You get your theology right, and man, you get excited about life. Moses had the faith that saves. 
The faith to keep the waterway open because God's plan was bigger. The faith that would destroy the Egyptian army in one act of obedience. It was the faith to trust God even when everyone second-guessed his decision to obey God that led the Israelites to salvation. Have faith that saves. Trust God to go after the lost and brokenhearted. See people how God sees them. Be courageous and have faith that saves. Not just yourself. Please. It can't end there. It's not just yourself. Someone who says, I've received Jesus, and then just goes and hides and reads their Bible, I have a hard time believing that they actually know him. If it was just about living away from the world in comfort, Jesus never would have showed up. He walked away from his throne. God took on flesh. God, who owes you nothing, took on flesh and submitted himself and walked among us and lived homeless and was mocked and bruised and beaten and challenged every way. John says he went to his own. He didn't go to strangers. He went to his own. And his own received him not. His own rejected him. That's the God we worship. That's the God we serve. Now we must go and do likewise. We must go and serve. It isn't about you enjoying the good life like Moses expected when he was shepherding in Midian comfortably with his wife and children, but have the faith that God gives to save others, to go after the lost and the oppressed, even in your own backyard, even if it means dealing with your past, even if it means going back to Egypt, even if it means leading in a way where people may not like it at times. Let me be really clear. If every one of you agree with every one of my decisions, then this isn't a church, it's a cult. And I don't like being surrounded by yes men. It's the reason why Pastor Paul and I get along so well. If I say something that's stupid, then I love you, but that's stupid. Yes! I, honestly, like that's no joke. Like That is what makes us such a powerhouse of a team. Because we're, we're both bluntly honest with each other and have each, other, uh, each other's backs and have complimenting gifts. It's really incredible watching what God has put together. Don't surround yourself with yes men. It will lead you down to a fall. Better are the wounds of a friend than the flattery of an enemy. Don't be afraid to make unpopular decisions, to have the faith that God gives you to obey unapologetically, even when they're second-guessing you, even when they're questioning everything that you're doing. Now, we're not done with Moses and the Israelites, but that's going to have to wait until next time. Um, I just want to close with this. You've got to remind yourself often I would say daily, but <laughs> I would say more like secondly <laughs> or minutely. You gotta remind yourself that there's more than this and the people in your sphere of influence 
God has put there for you to lead them to him. You've got to live life on mission. If we don't, if we just fall into the modern American Christian church rut, I have to question who we are. Charles Spurgeon said it best, right? Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. What good is salt if it loses its saltiness? Do you understand? And, and who wants to just live to pay bills and retire and die? I, I want to live for so much more. I want to serve him well. I want to love him well. I want to know him more. I want our family to, to get past stupid drama, be able to be vulnerable and love one another, and make sure there's always room at the table for more as we invite more and more people to understand who Jesus is. And you know what? If they come and, and they, they learn about Jesus from you and they hear the gospel from you and they decide you know, they want to be a part of a different local church, amen. God's kingdom is expanding. In fact, I'm friends with a ton of pastors out here. So if you got someone looking for a church and they don't want to be part of a tiny little church plant with a short chubby pastor that yells a lot, that's cool. I get it, man. A, a good friend of mine called us the alternative rock of church, right? We're not mainstream. We're the alternative rock, right? You know, mainstream is preach for 30 minutes. <laughs> so, right? So look, I, I get that. I, I understand that. And, and that's okay. That's okay, but let's, let, let's talk. Let me, let me find them a good church locally near them so they can engage in their community. The goal is to share the gospel. The goal is to save people. Moses, through his obedient faith, saved three to six million people as God fulfilled his promise through him. Now, I'm not suggesting you actually do the saving. We know that, right? Again, your theology will, will, will help here. That you understand, like, you don't, you don't grab somebody's forehead and they're saved. It doesn't work that way. But Paul made it clear. He planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Share the gospel. Live the gospel. Love people without strings attached. Love them radically. Make them a bit paranoid. Like, what is this guy trying to do? You, 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 you're trying to make me owe you a, a favor or something? No, man, I just, I just love you. Well, what the heck, dude? Just, am I allowed to do that? As long as there's no strings attached. No strings, man. No strings. There's no strings. I love you unapologetically because Jesus loved me with no strings attached unapologetically. That's <laughs> it. So let's allow our faith to be stretched so we have the faith that saves. Faith that leads others to know Jesus Christ and watch their lives be changed through the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord, we thank you for Moses. We thank you for his radical faith. We thank you for his obedience. God, we thank you that despite his flaws, you used him. 
God, we thank you that despite three to six million people second-guessing his decision as the leader, that he still obeyed you instead of caving to the pressure. God, so that there would be a permanent salvation for them from the people of Egypt, God, as they would trek forward and honor you on their journey into the land of Canaan. God, what a rich history we have, God, as your people. What a powerful history. And the hero of our history is you, Lord. So let us be small h, heroes of the faith today in our environment, in our communities, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families, God as we worship and honor the big H hero, you, Lord Jesus. We love you, we worship you, we praise you, our rescuer. We praise you, Lord Jesus, our rescuer. In Jesus' name, amen.